This is Jane Wilcox, and you are listening to Shaklesiology, Girls Talking Church. Tell your girls a story, I won't tell you a lie. Anything you want, you can do it just fine. Come on. In today's episode, Jen brings the question of how training for ministry needs to change to be more effective for the next generation. And specifically, as we seek ministry structures migrate towards more bivocational and co-vocational approaches, we consider the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra as an example of a collaborative community center approach to ministry and wonder if the same values offer a clue for church ministry training for the future. This is part one of a two-part episode for April. We are here together. Besides myself, Shaklesiology is... Kim Hu. Jennifer Johnson. Chris Ann Swartley. Jen, before we get started, tell the listeners, if you will, a bit about yourself, the work you do, your latest favorite, a favorite book, a favorite podcast, a favorite something. And then, of course, you can kick us off with the episode, um, maybe telling us why you chose the episode and the significance you see for it today in the church. Uh, My name is Jennifer Johnson. I serve as the chief communications officer at Johnson University, which is a small uh, private faith-based institution in Knoxville, Tennessee, where my husband and I live. Um, I've been there for four years. And before that, I had my own business writing and editing for a variety of um, primarily faith-based nonprofit organizations. So, um, writing video scripts and curriculum, and even ghostwriting some sermons here and there for some uh, leaders around the country, helping people ghostwrite their books, writing marketing stuff, whatever will pay was pretty much my unofficial tagline of that business. And so I come to this from um, a perspective of someone who has not just grown up in the church, but has earned her living adjacent to the church and to church-based ministries, Uh, hopefully making some sort of contribution along the way, and now coming to it from a position um, as an as a administrative leader at, one, at an institution of higher education that is actually trying to train uh, young men and women for ministry. So um, one, one of my favorites these days is a book that I'm just finishing up called Beautiful Country, a memoir of an undocumented childhood, and it's by a woman named Chan Julie Wang. And uh, it's, it's kind of a brutal book because it describes her, uh, her family's immigration to New York when she was just, uh, I think, five or six years old and pop, living in poverty during that time, their efforts to uh, make a life for themselves in America, the toll that it took on her family, the trauma that she endured, and then ultimately how she um, got an education. She found a life. She made a life here. Um, she's now a lawyer. She's now a best-selling author of this memoir that is, um, has been on the New York Times bestseller list since it was named the best book of the year last year. So it's an inspiring story, but it's also a tough one. I had to take breaks from it occasionally because she writes unflinchingly about what they experienced and about how it continues to affect her as a 20-something, 30-something young woman. So um, if I'm not working, I'm probably reading. And that's what I've been reading lately. So, All right. Thanks for that, Jen. So today we're talking about uh, the changing tide of ministry and ministry training. So why don't you kick us off, Jen? Sure. So... 
I think the, the pandemic sped up um, cultural forces already in play, not just in the church, but in the church for sure. And so we were already seeing um, churches that were struggling to pay their staff or to make budget or hold on to their buildings. That became even more difficult when people couldn't or wouldn't attend churches or when they were reluctant to come back or when they um, switched churches, as we, as we have talked about, happened some during the pandemic. Um, pastors who were already struggling or who were already questioning their call to ministry. Um, we're seeing that the pandemic and some of the, the cultural divides of the last six to seven years have sped that up as well. And so we've got a situation where we've got, um, I read one study that said somewhere between 75 to 150 churches are closing each week. And then Not you've surprised. got... Yeah, and then you've got a number of other churches that are hanging on, but they're questioning the way that they've done things. They're struggling mm -hmm. to budget to pay their staff. Um, and so as our culture becomes more post-Christian and as more churches struggle in this way to pay full-time staff and to um, do ministry the way that they've always done it, I think that opens up some challenges, which I wanna talk about here. And I think it also opens up some opportunities. One of the challenges and opportunities I see on the horizon is a growing number of churches being led by bivocational pastors or by what we would consider um, an, an orthodox or a different kind of ministry approach where you, instead of having a senior pastor, an associate pastor and a, a variety of staff, we're gonna see more members stepping up into leadership roles. We're gonna see more pastors having to work a quote unquote day job and then also be a leader of the church. Mm -hmm. And so I, I just want to unpack that trend a little bit, see your thoughts on if you see things heading in that direction, what you see the pros and cons. And then I think um, later we can pivot a little bit more to talking about how the institutions um, that we're a part of or that we are um, connected to could be part of facilitating that transition and equipping those leaders for ministry. Fabulous. Okay. so. Let's start by talking about big picture, where we see the church headed in terms of ministry structures. And do you agree with me that bivocational ministry may become more of a norm in the next generation? Or is there another structure that you think will be more effective for leading ministry in this new world that we find ourselves? Kim, what do you got? So this topic is really interesting to me uh, from my perspective. So I recently came into full-time ministry and left regular vocational work about two years ago. Um, I had gone to graduate school uh, and completed a master's in speech pathology. I was working as an elementary school uh, speech therapist for about three years before uh, I left and went into ministry full time. And so this idea comes at a really interesting point where now I'm thinking, should I have left my day job, kept my license and done full time ministry? Uh, but I think I see for myself as we're broaching this topic, um, for me in my context, I work mainly with college students and young adults, uh, and I think they crave a lot of relationship. And I just see my counterparts who do college ministry full time, I see how much time they spend with these students and how much they desire that. And I think maybe in future episodes, we'll unpack just this Gen Z era of church but I can see how much time it takes. And so when I think about if I were to try to meet up with the college students for lunch and still do private counseling on the side and also, you know, try to have a good marriage and attempt to do my laundry on time, it's kind of mind blowing to me. I'm sure there are people who do it 
and my hats are off to them. I think just where I am in my current state of ministry, I can't imagine doing that split and being able to do both well. Yeah, I think that's a good point. When we talk about bivocational ministry, it's easy to be um, almost flippant about it. Like, oh yeah, they'll work full time and then they'll also lead the church. Those of us who have done either one of those things know what a heavy lift that is. So that's part of the conversation is what would have to give in that? What does it look like to do both? And how do, how does a team get formed and how do other people need to come alongside to help share in that ministry? Um, because you're right, somebody's not going to do 40 hours at church and 40 hours in their regular job. So how many hours are we talking about? What do they do? who prioritizes what that person does. There's a lot of interesting questions around leadership and our assumptions about who's in charge and what that even means anymore. Jane, tell, tell us what you're thinking. Um, I think that resources uh, given even pre-COVID, but certainly uh, post-COVID, uh, resources that are going to sustain the future of the church are dwindling um, um, as you noted, Jen, at a significant rate, uh, you know, churches close primarily, primarily because of uns- unsustainable, uh, finances and whether it's the building or paying the pastor or, um, yeah, usually it's those two things. Um, uh, if, if we didn't pay a pastor, which I believe at least in, in, in small churches, it's about 40% of the budget up to, I mean, if they're generous, it's like 40% of the budget. Can you imagine not having to pay a pastor and not being in crisis mode because you can't pay the pastor, but it's an intentional strategy for um, how are we going to uh, not just be, not just be sustainable in the future, but to really thrive in the future. uh, If we rethink our ministry structure, and maybe that's bivocational. Maybe it's the bivocational path. Uh, one of the articles we read talked about co-vocational, which I love. It's a very intentional um, dual, dual vocation mode, right? So you have vocation in the church, but you also have vac- vocation in the marketplace. Chrisanne, tell me what you're thinking. So reflecting on my own experience in ministry, this is one of the gifts of not being the main breadwinner of my family now. So this is coming from, I recognize that this is coming from, um, you know, I am, I am, uh, you know, wife to a husband who works full-time, um, provides very well for us. My health insurance coverage comes from him, all of that. Um, and so I've been able to work part-time at a church. I've been able to volunteer at a church and not be paid at all. And, um, I haven't had the burden of needing, you know, then I was able to care for our children full-time when they were not in school. Um, and even when they are in school, I'm able to flex enough to be the one who picks them up from after-school activities and run them around to all of their other stuff. So that's been the gift of my experience, but I recognize that there are single pastors, um, who Mm. need to provide their own way and need to provide their own health insurance coverage, um, and all of those extra things. And then, um, there are pastors who are the main breadwinner of their home. Like they, yeah. So (laughs) it's a, it's a bigger shift than just in the church. It might be a bigger shift in culture in general, um, that 
we need to rethink that older, more traditional model of, of the way households work. I'll just say households. Yeah. Um, cause yeah, rent is expensive. Mortgages are expensive. Health coverage is very expensive. Yeah. But I do think there's something to leverage when churches consider women pastors. I mean, that, that has been the advantage. It's sort of like we're riding on the piggyback of the patriarchal structure in our society, right? Where men typically are the breadwinners. Well, if that's going to be the case, I guess I will be able to raise my kids, right? I live in my neighborhood, pastors in my neighborhood. My kids' school is, is a two-minute walk down the road. And so I could still be mom in my community, in my home, uh, but also pastor at, at a church. Um, and I think in, in, the, in the transition, we can leverage that opportunity. Yes, there's a downside because certainly there are uh, single women uh, that have a pastoral calling, uh, lots of other modes of, um, uh, of status, if you will, in society. But I think there is something to leverage, particularly for women uh, in navigating that. And an interesting question, would men be more willing to be the quote, stay at home parent to the children right? and yep. pastor, would they be willing to take on that role? And uh, yeah. And in that way, lift some of the financial burden off the church. I was sitting in a meeting uh, with all, all men. I was the only woman in the room and we were talking about missional communities and the, uh, the value of gathering around a meal and uh, the invitation, the idea that someone threw out was, oh, you know, once a week you could have, you just commit to once a week having neighbors over um, to build those missional connections within your neighborhood. And I said, just please be aware, <laughs> you men, <laughs> be aware that, you know, it's often the, the wife, the woman's responsibility to then clean up the home make the meal and do all that preparation. Meanwhile, she's also like, you're keeping your more traditional church structures in place as well, while you're trying these missional experiments. So, I mean, she's also the one that is doing those things at church. So just be aware that you don't burn out the women in your congregation as mm-hmm. you're trying these new modes. Yeah. We, we need to rethink some of these yeah. traditional modes of doing things. At least you said, please though. That was really nice. Christian. You didn't have to, but you did. Another thing that I, I notice as I see this conversation starting to happen, and, and maybe it's happening all over, and I'm just not privy to it, but we're, but what I see a lot more of is not um, curious exploration of what new structures mm-hmm. look like. It's more drum banging for trying to urge people to come back to church and why, why they should continue yeah. with the current models. And I think some of that is well-intentioned. I think there's a lot of people who see the church, um, the, the, the low numbers of people who are going to church under 50%, I think, of Americans participate in some sort of um, faith service uh, on a given week. And, and so I understand that there's fear that comes with that. There's, there's a sense that we're losing something that's very important, obviously, as people of faith. We, we are doing a whole podcast around the church. We care about the church. But I don't think that haranguing people to return or even trying to make the case for 
why it's important at an intellectual level is necessarily the most effective way to approach this. And what I'm seeing is a lot more um, fighting for what was, taking precedence over mm-hmm. perhaps finding what's next. And I'm more interested in the finding what's next conversation, not because I don't value what's come before, but I think the only way we're going to accomplish their goal of reaching more people uh, for Jesus and, and inviting more people into the rhythm of weekly worship, I think the only way we're going to do that is by finding what's next. Mm. Instead of trying to, you know, um, pull people toward what has maybe worked 30, 40 years ago, I think it's much more, not just more um, interesting for me personally, because it's not about me. I think it's actually more effective to consider what some of these structures might need to look like. So there's the pragmatic side that we've talked about in terms of pastors are leaving, we can't make budget, how do we do this? But then I think it's also an opportunity to think creatively. Jane, what do you think about that? So um, I think there's fruit in rethinking uh, vocation in general. Uh, I listened to a podcast, I think it's Commonweal's podcast, can't remember, oh, I'm sorry, no, uh, Collegeville Institute. They, They did a whole series on vocation and had different uh, guests come in and speak. She's an author, and she's also a professor of theology at I can't remember where. Kathleen Callahan, I, I believe is her last name. She's wrote, written several books on vocation and calling, but she sees calling or vocation as dynamic and not static. And also our first calling, our first vocation is to the community, the faith community, not to the, towards this individualistic uh, what does God want me to do? But as a community, uh, what is our what is our vocation? Um, I and then she talks about and this is where I really honed in and it was uh, quite relevant for me. She talks about typically we th- it, it is better to think about vocation in terms of seasons. What is God calling either me or us to in this season? And, you know, having just turned 50, actually a few years ago, (laughs) uh, I look back on my life and that has been completely true, that God has um, invited me into and out of different vocational um, experiences and and callings, if you will. Uh, we, We don't typically think in terms of um, both communally, what, what are we being called to do, but also in terms of seasons and seasons as it matches as it, as it aligns with our own seasons in life, I think, um, which is, again, that's a very woman thing to do because we, uh, I think we, f- we feel the changing seasons of life and stages more intimately and intently, uh, than typically how men, they're, they're, they're very much shoehorned into a career field or career direction. I really love that point that Jane brought up about seasons because seasons or the advice that she's giving about discerning seasons, that's not something I wouldn't say to someone in my church. Um, like I said, I, I with a lot of college students, young adults who are discerning their career paths, and that's not advice I wouldn't give them. And so it's interesting that I don't necessarily think that that's advice I would tell myself or other people in ministry, mm-hmm. you just think that you're in ministry until like the day that you die and you see Jesus. Right. 
um, which is great. God bless those people that God has called, but that's not everyone's season. And I think as we talk about seasons or even the shift maybe in church structure, um, thinking about vocation is this idea of discernment. And I know that's like a mm. word that we love to just throw around, but rather than talk about just like think and pray about it, which is great. And discernment takes space and discernment mm-hmm. takes time and discernment means it's a process and we need to give people space to, to, to like discern those seasons and to have the freedom to voice just maybe I would like to introduce change and to hope that the people around you in your community won't freak out that you might think about doing something different. I think another important thing to consider in this discussion, you know, I mentioned earlier, it's really easy to say, well, we'll just shift to a different structure where people have two jobs and it'll all work out. I think it's also important to to name how many of our ministry leaders want to leave the ministry, but don't feel like they have other options because they haven't been educated for anything else. So the Barna study um, at the beginning of 2021, 29% of the pastors that they surveyed were considering quitting full-time ministry. And then just 10 months later in October of last year, it was up to 38%. And who knows what it would be now? I don't know what trajectory that's going on for four months later, but I assume it's not that suddenly nobody wants to quit. But how many of those men and women are able to make that choice, even if they wanted to, because they came up through, they, they felt called to ministry, however we're defining that. And then they have been doing ministry and they're not equipped to do anything else um, or at least nothing that would enable them to um, earn the same salary or provide for their families or receive the same benefits. And so I think that's another aspect of this conversation. There's definitely the, the calling, there's the discernment, but how many of them have the luxury of being able to discern a new calling in a new season when they, they have an undergraduate degree in Bible and theology, or they, or they spent $50,000 or more to go to seminary and they're still paying off those loans. I think there are real issues here that we have to consider mm-hmm. as a community of faith mm-hmm. we're going to shift to a different model. And we have to find ways to help our pastors navigate that as much as our members. Mm-hmm. We've talked a little bit about why this is an important topic to discuss, given the cultural realities that we're facing and some of the challenges that are facing local churches. And we talked about the opportunities that it might present for a new way of thinking. But that begs the question of where do we go from here? How do we actually put Mm -hmm. uh, a plan to this? And what does it actually look like in the real world? And for one example, or for one inspiration that I thought we could consider, I looked to a group called the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra. The Orpheus Chamber Orchestra was introduced to me by my husband, who is um, a trained musician who thought he was gonna be an opera singer and then he became a pastor. Um, but he has a great love of anything um, classical music related. And so he introduced me to this group. And what's interesting about this group is that it is a chamber orchestra, um, but it does not have a conductor. Instead, they have a model where each of the group members, um, they take turns um, and small groups of them meet to prepare and to lead each piece. So one or two or three of the musicians among, let's say 30 some, Uh, will um, decide which piece that they're going to do. They will meet to talk about the interpretation of it, the way that they feel like it should be performed to make the artistic choices. They will lead the rehearsals for that piece and they will actually give the cues um, during the performance of that piece. There's nobody standing in front of the baton. So it's a much more democratic system, if you will, but Mm -hmm. it's, 
it's an unorthodox model because I think it's much messier. You have to make all those choices about who's going to lead which parts. And then you, those people have to get together and wrestle through all of the artistic decisions. So it's not as efficient as having a conductor mm. or a president or a senior pastor up front making all the decisions. It's much messier and it requires much more collaboration and communication. So one of the things to talk about in this discussion is, again, getting into the nitty gritty of it, not the idealized version of it. What would this actually look like? Mm. Uh, What if new approaches to ministry would look more like the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra with more people leading in more ways? And what are we imagining if we're talking about new ministry structures? What what would it look like to have more collaborative ministry in the church? I have a number of thoughts about that. Um, One of them being that we just talked about the move toward bivocational ministry because of the financial demands um, that churches aren't able to meet with full-time staff. So that means a pastor would have less time. I mean, there are only 24 hours in a day and seven days in a week. So that means a pastor would have less time to give to congregational ministry. And yet we're talking about the possibility, which I love. I mean, you talk about that orchestra and I love that idea, but at the same time, you talked about how it takes much more time to work through that Mm. kind of leadership model that rotates through the group. So I'm just wondering how this would actually play out in real time and real space in a, in a congregation. Yeah. Kim, what do you think about that? Absolutely agree with Chris Ann. It takes time, which means you have to be willing to go the long run. This is not going to be a quarterly plan that is implemented. You have to be willing to play the long game. And that's, I, I think I want to stop and acknowledge that that can be really scary if you're not used to change. If you've been in the same system and it's all you've known, it's all your people have known and change is scary. Mm-hmm. And I think there is part of me mm-hmm. that wants to be empathetic and gracious to that. But what I love about this like really beautiful illustration of this orchestra that you brought for us, Jen, is that every single member, one, uh, is given the space uh, to take ownership and leadership. Two, it's something that they want. They want Mm. leadership. And I wonder if that's also something that we have to grow in our people is to say that, hey, this spot of leadership is also for you. And then three, it's not like all the orchestra is all violins, I'm assuming. Uh, they have different they have different instruments that they're playing. Um, we want to get really metaphorical with it. Just, it's so clearly about the body of Christ and all these different giftings. And uh, I always like, we love joking about like, not everyone gets to be the eyeball, okay? Like some of us need to be the big toe and the big toe is very important. Um, <laughs> And just like that. And like, I think like to be like, Hey, to affirm that in people. And Mm -hmm. I think to affirm those giftings in people means that we at a leadership level or just as a community need to be speaking of value to those gifts so that when the opportunity of leadership comes up, people don't have to say, but I'm not the first violin. I can't do this. It's just like, if I didn't ask you to be the first violin, God didn't even ask you to Mm -hmm. be the first violin. You are who you are. Can our church affirm and see it so that people will step up and we can have this shifting mentality of leadership? Oh, that was good, Kim. That was good. Um, I think that when Martin Luther insisted that the priesthood of believers, our theology of the priesthood of believers 
was was a part of uh, of the reforms that he was bringing. Um, it was actually the Anabaptists, the radical reformers, that said to Luther, "You haven't gone far enough. You you still allowed clerical structures of authority and sacred power uh, to really be in place." It was the radical reformers that deconstructed that. Yeah, Christine's waving her waving her Meta Knight flag. I will say this, uh, given the fact that even 500 years later, we're still not embracing fully what it means that we are the priesthood of believers. I had a stint in the Mennonite church. I was filling in for a pastor that was out on medical leave. One of the coolest things, and it didn't happen just at this church, and maybe it's just the women in the Mennonite church that I saw this. Senior pastors, do they, they, I think they call them, do they call them senior pastors, Chris Ann? Yes. Yep. Okay. Um, they would, they would preach three quarter time. So uh, typically there was a week during the month, uh, Sunday during the month that someone else would preach some either on the pastoral team, or maybe they bring in a youth person in the preaching schedule. There was, they left space as a senior pastor. I want a week off and that you could uh-huh. count on that week off. That's a lovely thing. But on the other end of that, that you are giving um, other staff space to uh, take on the preaching task, um, and then even outside of the staff. At least I, I, I interpreted that through um, the Anabaptist tradition that really has, Chris Ann's going to have something to say, I'm sure. But it, from the outside of looking in, that at least makes attempts at embracing the priesthood of all believers. Mm-hmm. Do you think that comes out of a theology? Yes, I do. Okay. I think that rhythm of one Sunday a month might not, I don't, I don't think you could say that that's across the board in, in okay. many Mennonite congregations, but yes, I think in general, whether it's um, that you have a worship leader as well as a music leader, as well as a preacher on a given Sunday, uh, as well as perhaps someone else even reads the scripture. We are, we are definitely more multi-voiced than I've observed in other traditions. Um, which I mean, and let me admit that my experience outside of Mennonite is pretty limited. So, uh, Mennonite is pretty much all I've ever known. Um, but yeah, when I have experienced congregational worship outside of the Mennonite church, I've noticed that we, I'm like, Oh, you, you read the scripture and you preach and your music leader is your worship leader. Like you don't, you don't include other voices. <laughs> it it ha- seems strange to me. I think it's important to acknowledge that what we're talking about here, no one's advocating chaos. People still need leadership. People still need direction. This isn't about let's get everybody in a room and just see what happens. Um, you know, I, I think that one of the things that makes the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra is so effective is that everybody who's a member of that very select orchestra is one of the top musicians in the world in their, mm-hmm. in their instrument. They, these are people who are at the top of their game and who are equipped. They're coming in knowing that this is part of the DNA of this group, which of course, not every person, not even every leader in the church is going to necessarily be an A-plus leader. Not, I'm not an A-plus leader. <laughs> Many days. So, You're close, Jen. You're so close. Thanks. I mean, I'll take the affirmation wherever I can get. <laughs> so I think we have to acknowledge that this isn't, there's still leadership. There's still going to be um, elders or shepherds or whatever your faith community, whatever your, your leadership structure looks like. There might even still be 
the co-vocational pastor who's in charge. No, so this isn't an abdication of leadership, but it's distributing the, um, the responsibility and also the accountability to a larger group and asking more people. I love your, your, I love what you said about different voices, Chrisanne, because I think you can invite different voices into the conversation without having to turn into babble. Hey, thanks for being a part of our listening community at Shaklesiology. We would love to hear your ideas for future podcast topics. What do you think are the pressing issues facing the church today that women need to be talking about? You can send your topics to ideas at girlstalkingchurch.com. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Oh.